everyone. We are um, launching a, a webinar today um, that is part of our series of webinars on human rights. Uh, most and all are accessible on our website, xapa.org. I'm uh, displaying some of the meeting instructions, which ensure that everyone can make the most of this session together. Um, you can, of course, change your name so everyone knows who you are, but make sure that um, um, uh, you, you intervene using the chat function because you're muted. That's a way to maintain high quality uh, for the discussion. We don't need the cameras. Um, if they're all turned off. It's more of a podcast format. Uh, it's a good way to save bandwidth and minimize uh, the collective footprint of um, uh, all, all of us. Um, you can invite other participants and uh, the slides that we are going to display will be uh, accessible on our website in our event and webinar um, uh, section at xapa.org. Um, so you can feel free to download the slides instead of taking notes and be more active listening to what our uh, interveners will have to share with all of us today. So you are many people uh, joining us again uh, for this webinar today. Um, so please uh, raise hand or use the chat function if you, if you want to, to ask a question and I will moderate the discussion. A short poll will be activated at the far end of this webinar to ensure that you can uh, respond to three very simple questions which help us improve and maximize the quality of those webinars. Um, so you're joining today a session on human rights due diligence uh, to get an overview of the legally binding instruments to date. Um, it's pretty timely because there is really a lot going on. Uh, interestingly, the COVID-19 sanitary crisis has met uh, the case um, for uh, human rights even more than ever, but this is actually also coming after years of efforts in this space where there is probably today more maturity than ever to really work safely on those issues. Um, my name um, as moderator of this session is Farid. I'm a part of uh, XAPA organization. I will make a very brief introduction of this, uh, but just about myself, I've been working on those issues for more than 20 years on many aspects. I've worked on that uh, from a corporate perspective as a board member. I've worked as an advisor for a lot of uh, global companies who know me and I've worked with um, uh, our services and I'm an activist on those topics. So I've always tried to explore what could be done differently, better with innovative solutions to improve impact of human rights solutions. Xapa.org uh, is an organization which has been established uh, with one very simple um, uh, objective, uh, moving from risk avoidance to risk mitigation with innovative approaches. Um, we're a mission-driven organization, and so our website, xapa.org. Um, a lot of our content is accessible um, in open source manner because we just want to share and help everyone get insight, experience, and do their best to improve human rights. Um, and we combine expertises um, uh, that are extremely diverse to really approach those human rights issues uh, from a combination of, of expertise we believe are very pertinent uh, from sustainability, digital agronomy and others. Uh, and we have a global reach uh, because we operate with uh, a large list of uh, clients, well, mostly companies and investors based across the globe. And we have 150 affiliates worldwide uh, working with us to deploy very active programs uh, really across the globe. Um, a lot that is of interest working and engaging with uh, xapa.org is clearly to actually also access a large number of um, open source uh, content uh, that is part of our commitment to advocacy on those issues. So briefing paper you can download, blog posts, sharing perspective, and taking part in webinars 
which are recorded and accessible uh, for free um, uh, on our websites. And the webinar you're enjoying today is, is part of a long series exploring really from legal, global, uh, activist, uh, business practitioner, investor perspectives, what can be done differently um, to improve impact of uh, our business audience uh, to uh, uh, human rights. We're exploring the issue today just to set the scene and uh, very quickly move to um, uh, a brief uh, presentation of our um, interveners with one simple overview. Uh, we're at a moment when there have been audits and other activities for the past 20 years which have pinpoint recurring risks, uh, which have never proven to find really uh, solutions. So while social audits have proven to be helpful, at the end of the day, they need to be complemented with additional and other activities from a pure business perspective. Um, many approaches have uh, been uh, deployed uh, to mainstream human rights due diligence. We'll come back to that later uh, with a deep dive across initiatives that are underway. Uh, but at the end of the day, effective enforcement mechanisms have not necessarily been uh, sufficient uh, to demonstrate impact of a lot of the efforts to date. So given that we have a mushrooming, uh, converging number of uh, regulatory initiatives um, from uh, countries, uh, multilateral um, or um, uh, other instances, um, our motto on uh, addressing those human rights is really to encourage private sector to work really on a systemic approach, understanding their human rights activities, where best they cannot exclusively mitigate risk, uh, mitigate risk, but really prove that they have an impact uh, and deploy solutions. So in response, typically XAPA is really established to provide really a combination of capacity to provide insight uh, and strategy, strategize approach of human rights uh, from a, a consulting perspective. But I find it most interesting to explore some of the other aspects uh, that we're deploying ourselves to activate solutions and bring, for example, digital working capital solutions to manage complexity, ensure scale, and ensure impact of programs uh, addressing root causes of human rights across um, operations and supply chains uh, globally. Moving to human rights due diligence, I'm delighted uh, to welcome uh, the uh, participation of our two uh, uh, expert panelists and interveners today. So in order, Len Winland will be uh, number one sharing your perspectives. So Len is our Chief Business and Human Rights Development and Social and Economic Issue Branch of the United Nations Human Rights Organization. Um, and uh, we'll also um, be delighted to welcome as a second speaker, Didier Bergeret, uh, Social Sustainability and Sustainable Supply Chain Initiative Director at uh, the CGF, the Consumer Good Forum. Um, so delighted first to welcome Len. So Len, go ahead and uh, you're welcome to introduce yourself first and uh, outline or display on the screen a few uh, talking points that would be uh, delighted to hear from you. Global perspective, UNGP's 10 plus and UN treaty update. And of course, given that our world is increasingly digitalized, um, it's interesting to understand also the uh, perspective on those, on, on those on, on those emerging but very, very sensitive dimensions. Thank you, Farid, um, and thanks to Sapa for inviting me to join. This is the first time we've had an opportunity to engage, and I'm really delighted to, to be invited to speak. Um, can you hear me okay? Very well. 
Good. So um, I wanted to actually start by giving a little bit of, of, of history or a little bit of background as to why we are seeing this um, uh, many initiatives in the mandatory human rights due diligence um, space um, evolving um, in the human rights arena. Um, I know that many of you will, will know some of this uh, background very well, but I, I thought when we have this discussion, it's always really important, I find, to understand sort of the context, the background, because that makes um, makes it easier to understand both where we are and, and also how the, what the trajectory might be going forward. So just briefly by way of introduction, um, uh, so in the international human rights uh, domain, there is a long history of evolution of soft law instruments, sort of standards, declarations, like the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, evolving into legally binding conventions, um, in this case for states, so the Universal Declaration transformed into um, two uh, conventions that states um, uh, could ratify. Uh, the same with other human rights issues, the Convention Against Torture started with a soft law declaration. So, so this notion that you, you have standards that are evolving and eventually turns into something that is, um, is legally binding is something that um, certainly in the human rights domain, but also in other areas, um, is, is quite uh, well known and quite um, uncontroversial. Um, things are not always linear, there can be parallel efforts. So you have both the sort of the understanding, the evolution of the what the standard is happening at the same time as some legal developments are happening. So another little um, uh, sort of one could keep in mind is that, of course, these things are not always linear. And sometimes they can start from the from the national level and going up to the international level. So we had the, in the anti-corruption um, area, we started with the, the US Foreign Corrupt Practices Act that then turned into an OECD convention against corruption. And then finally there was an understanding that it's actually a lot easier if everyone plays by the same rules. So eventually it, it turned into a UN um, convention. So just by way of background understanding that these developments, they are, they are pretty standard and they, they, they take on a life of its own. And it's not if you start with a soft law standard, it's it's really gonna stay stay there if if the needs and if the developments um, and the different actors involved um, realize that it, it actually becomes a lot easier if, um, if, if there are spaces where uh, regulatory or mandatory um, developments uh, get the job done in a more effective way. So um, turning to what has been my um, bread and butter for, for the last many years, the UN Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights. Um, as many of you will know, um, they are turning 10 years this year um, in June. Um, so it's 10 years since the international community for the first time um, endorsed a, a framework on human rights for business. Um, that was a soft law instrument. It was a, a, a set of principles presented by an independent expert to the UN Human Rights Council. So member states of the, of the United Nations voted to endorse um, this framework. So it wasn't a treaty uh, by its own, it wasn't legally binding on its own. It had what sort of lawyers, international lawyers called um, uh, 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 status of a soft law instrument. Um, and the UN guiding principles, again, I'm sure most of you will be familiar with them, 
but comprises three pillars. So one of them directed um, to states, so reminding states, reiterating the legal obligations that states have under international human rights law to ensure that um, companies um, operate with respect for human rights. So that was sort of not legally binding by itself, but reminding states, reiterating and elaborating on legal obligations that states have. Uh, the second pillar is the corporate responsibility to respect human rights. And this is really where the whole discussion about human rights due diligence um, originates, because in the UN Guiding Principles, the, the corporate responsibility to respect human rights is articulated as a standard that can be met and should be met by companies through them undertaking effective human rights due diligence. So that's really where the the, the, the issue as articulated on hum, in human rights due diligence terms um, in this way originated. And then there's a third uh, aspect of the UN guiding principles and access to remedy for those impacted, um, which is directed both um, to states um, and, and non-states. Um, so the UN uh, guiding principles reminded states, as I mentioned, of their legal duties to impose effective policies and regulation to ensure business respect for human rights. So they say under the duties that you already have states under international human rights law, you should take all the necessary measures that can um, ensure respect for human rights in the context of business. And the guiding principles in calling for states to, to do this um, uh, use the term the smart mix of measures. Um, it says uh, states should not assume that businesses invariably prefer or benefit from state inaction, and they should consider a smart mix of measures, national and international, mandatory and voluntary, to foster business respect for human rights. So really the what we're talking about today and this whole um, uh, evolution into mandatory human rights due diligence standards in, in different ways um, is what we would, would frame part of the smart mix, part of the measures that, that states can take, um, either as policy incentives or as um, adopting laws and regulations at the national, regional, international level. So again, going to where where we are today, this was all, this is all part of the script, um, as it was set out in even guiding principles. But when we started in back in 2011, um, there was mostly from, from states a focus on the voluntary, the soft law side of the equation. And many states um, engaged, particularly in Europe, on, um, but also increasingly in other parts of the world, particularly Asia, on developing national action plans on business and human rights. And, and most of these national action plans, they were not laws, of course, they were action plans that restated policy initiatives the state had taken and including recommendations for business to do human rights due diligence that would be very often part of the national action plan but there were um, relatively few calls for or new legal developments coming out of the the NAPs the national action plans. Um, there were on in some areas, there were some of the early legislative initiatives were mostly reporting requirements so mandating, for example, that the EU non-financial reporting directive. Um, and also some of the national early national laws we saw in this space were that companies were expected or mandated to report on for example, ensuring that they, um, what, what measures they're taking to prevent modern slavery in their supply chains or trafficking or um, around specific commodities, conflict in the north, et cetera. 
But the the change into a sort of fully fledged human rights due diligence, as it was um, uh, set down in the guiding principles, um, the early mover in, in, in that space was really with the French law, and, and many of you will be familiar with it, uh, the, the duty of vigilance law. Um, another important sort of um, uh, change uh, or factor that that, that change was the, set out actually in the German National Action Plan on Business and Human Rights that started putting companies on notice to do human rights due diligence or else regulation with FOIL. And so the German National Action Plan said, well, we can go the voluntary route. This is something you, you can do, you should do, we expect you to do. And if you don't do it voluntarily, we're going to pass regulation. And um, so the German government published, um, they had monitored what companies were doing under the National Action Plan, how they were doing their due diligence, um, human rights diligence, and found that actually after two years, only 20% of companies had um, had taken action in the space. So they said, okay, now we're going to we're going to have to do what we said we would do, namely um, um, start um, legislative initiative. And that is now expected to enter into force in Germany um, in January 2023. It applies to only larger companies. It applies only to first tier of the supply chain. And, and there certainly we would have some questions about whether it's fully aligned with the UN guiding principles. But the, 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 the trend and the sort of impetus for going in that direction is, is, um, was very clear. It also coincided with the German uh, 2020 EU presidency, where at the EU level, alongside pushing at the national level, the German government could push um, an EU-wide initiative. And that then resulted in the European Parliament adopting a report, um, developed, working on a report and, and in March adopting it by a large majority from um, across the political spectrum, calling on the European Commission to, um, to, to start um, developing an EU-wide directive. Um, and we're expecting the draft directive coming out of the European Commission in June 2021. So again, just the point being that these things, they there are different developments. The evolution is happening, um, and it can it, there can be different drivers for for getting it. Um, at the same time, and since the French law, there's a number of other countries that are presenting or planning to do national human rights due diligence or supply chain laws. So in addition to France. Um, Scandinavian countries are considering the Netherlands. There's a proposal in Switzerland. We had a referendum uh, last year, which won the popular vote, but um, failed under the Swiss constitutional arrangements. So there is a less um, comprehensive uh, Swiss law that will be entering into force. Obviously, having so many different initiatives does raise some concern about alignment and coherence between the different um, initiatives. Um, so that's something that um, that can be um, and must be considered. And that's why from the UN side, we would argue that it is important to be aligned when you're doing these laws to be have alignment with the global authoritative UN standard, because that just makes life so much easier for everyone that it's not the French law or the Dutch law or, or anyone else, but they all align, they're all um, coherent with um, the international standards. So they, they reflect the same standards of expectation and the same, um, you can then scale up um, uh, the implementation. These laws are still largely um, in Europe, um, though there are some targeted legislative initiatives elsewhere in the Indonesian fishing industry. We see a number of other um, initiatives. There are also 
um, agreements sector-wide. We have the Bangladesh Accord, which um, involves uh, a number of, of companies working with trade unions, signing a legally binding contract um, to do certain things vis-a-vis um, uh, safety measures in the Bangladesh Government Initiative. So again, legally binding initiatives can come in many different forms. They can also come through the, the contractual level. At the international level, and I'm sure I'm soon running out of time, so I'll, I'll speed up. Um, we have had since 2014, so we had in 2011, we had the UN Guiding Principles. In 2014, there was a majority of states who decided that actually we needed now a UN Treaty on Business and Human Rights. Um, that treaty is now, um, yeah, is meeting once a year, that process to negotiate its uh, will, if and when it, it, it materializes and gets adopted, will also have a strong component on human rights due diligence, but it is a slow moving and still politically sensitive process. And there is no one who can say with any certainty if or when it will uh, materialize into um, an actual convention, which then of course will um, still have to be uh, ratified by states and implemented at the national level. So I think the treaty process, it proves the point that there is an evolution to these things and eventually, you know, these kind of issues that are particularly where there are some cross-border uh, international elements, maybe a multilateral approach um, is, is more effective than having this myriad of, of national um, uh, initiatives. But um, again, that is a political discussion and, um, and that process is still ongoing. Um, there are also a number of sector-specific in initiatives. And we see, for example, in relation to the tech sector, a number of initiatives that um, are, are aimed at, at regulating the, including the human rights impact of, um, of the tech sector. We at UN Human Rights have um, uh, one of our flagship projects in the space is what we call the BTEC project, which seeks to apply the lens of the UN Guiding Principles to digital technologies, focusing and engaging with both states as regulators, but also very much with, um, with tech companies on how they can use, how can do due diligence to, um, to prevent and mitigate the risks that come from, from their various products and services. The, the BTEC project also has an investor track, so we have guidance specifically for investors, um, uh, so venture capitalists, those investing in tech, with how these standards and these expectations apply in the, in the tech space. So I invite you to, to check out the portal with, um, with more information. Um, we have, as I said, the UN Guiding Principles now is 10 years old. Um, there is a, the UN Working Group on Business and Human Rights um, has, is running the UNGPs at 10 initiative. So they are taking stock, have, have a project over the last year where they have taken stock of what has happened in the last 10 years in this space. And, and again, the, this discussion here is touching only on, on a small part of that but they will present also a roadmap for the next decade. So what are, what should be the expectations? What are the expectations um, moving forward, building on including a lot of the, the regulatory developments, but also with a particular role on the financial sector as a driver for faster implementation of the UN guiding principles. Um, so there will be a particular report presented to the Human Rights Commission uh, uh, Council which um, which uh, an addendum focusing specifically 
activity on the financial sector. So um, I will end here just uh, by way of concluding um, observations, just to reiterate that there is a strong uh, trend, as you will have, have seen, towards mandatory human rights due diligence, both at the national, regional, international levels for business. Um, all more or less converging around the standards set in the UN guiding principles. So it's not as if we don't know what is expected. There's been 10 years of work to try to understand how companies uh, can do this. It's basically a risk management framework that focuses on avoiding and preventing risk to people. And the sooner companies and investors get on board and ahead of these developments, the better they are placed to make um, good human rights due diligence um, also a competitive advantage. Um, I, I haven't touched upon the COVID question, um, but certainly um, there, it's very clear that human rights need to be embedded, included in, in the operations of a company if um, it is to be positioned to, to respond to effectively um, the kind of crisis that COVID has presented and, um, and actually taking a human rights approach, managing human rights risk can be a, and many companies have demonstrated that, an effective way to, to respond to the crisis in a way that is not only good for human rights, but also good for the companies. I will stop here and sorry for taking a little bit longer. Thank you. Very concise for um, actually a topic which we know to be uh, extremely uh, extremely complex, but at least I we're hopeful, and I can see that through um, some of the questions coming my way or reactions that uh, it is uh, it is showing a clear threat. Uh, and um, I just for those who joined uh, halfway, um, the what's displayed on the screen is, will be uh, accessible in open source on the website, so you don't need to take note, and uh, you will have uh, direct access to a lot of the hyperlinks. Uh, which are provided in the presentation. So that just to address some a series of questions which have come my way. Um, just moving on, um, a quick uh, overview of the slides on um, the um, uh, EU mandatory human rights. So what's expected out of it will come um, in June, um, but clearly um, for when it's an initiative uh, that is uh, led by a 500 million consumers. This, this clearly has a bearing for a lot of um, uh, global um, uh, operations and, uh, and companies. So we have um, <laughs> questioned ourselves a lot by companies headquartered in the US about what they can do and how they scratch their head with this. So that's typically uh, what's going on. Um, um, uh, we are sharing, and that will be accessible in the presentation, some of the articulation between the France's duty of vigilance. I mean, we've, we've played with it extensively with um, a lot uh, of uh, large companies and investors in France, so we really know some of it. A risk actually with the France's duty of vigilance is increasingly, uh, at least as a perspective of business decision makers, how this can be instrumentalized for some um, kind of uh, political agendas uh, beyond uh, even um, a sphere of complicity. Uh, from a, a human right lens, uh, which might be right, it might be wrong, but at least it's um, it's a point I would call that of uh, vigilance. And again, this is as always calling for a, a close understanding of high risk and good faith in the risk mitigation activities. Um, moving on to additional or uh, uh, initiatives across the globe, uh, it's clear that this year um, uh, the agenda in Germany is extremely interesting. Um, and just a, a, a way to read actually also the, the kind of a failure of the initiative in Switzerland, we were told by uh, many uh, organizations was at the end of the day, and that's a, a good reason why 
uh, um, uh, broader uh, global binding treaties is important. You may have um, a kind of uh, human rights uh, uh, legislation in a country like Switzerland, which does not is not enforced. But at the end of the day, you still need, in view of the European Union, mandatory due diligence to comply with it one way or another. So it, it makes the, the global uh, market and at least export uh, uh, relationship uh, extremely complicated for some. We just wanted to provide um, an overview of some of what's going on way beyond uh, Europe uh, across the globe, um, because uh, this might reinforce need for a global framework when you look at some of the initiatives, for example, which may focus on specific issues uh, like black based, uh, broad -based, black based uh, economic empowerment in, in South Africa, and just with that lens, or uh, California transparency in supply chain, very different um, uh, angle, but at the end of the day, all kind of framing something similar. Last, uh, before ending over uh, to Didier. Um, we find it important as part of the agenda to change actually also a little bit the perspective and understand what's coming from investors uh, beyond other initiatives displayed on the screen. Um, but at least the European Union taxonomy, which has been uh, released to frame a normative uh, approach for uh, asset managers in how they are understanding ESG, environmental, social and governance, but of course that implies ethics and, and human rights as part of ESG. Um, and when you look at the EU taxonomy, it clearly encourages to do not do, do no significant harm uh, to the, the, the different uh, expected contributions on, on, um, uh, on the EU taxonomy. So basically, primarily it's about supporting green finance and energy transition, climate friendly investments and those kind of things as part of the, the, the most of the six um, uh, defined environmental objectives. And when you look at that more closely, it is making a, a, a linkage uh, with uh, the human right impact of that. So we, we found it important to, to flag this. And we are moving on to a different perspective and, uh, and enable uh, Didier Bergeret to first introduce yourself and of course the Consumer Good Forum, and then uh, share with us a concrete uh, perspective based on actually wealth and years of, of experience exploring the topic. Thanks a lot, Farid, and thanks a lot for giving us the opportunity to be on this uh, webinar. And of course, thanks to Lena uh, for the very insightful uh, presentation she made earlier. Uh, briefly, the Consumer Goods Forum is a business association of 400 members uh, representing the wider consumer goods industry. Uh, we are a CEO-led organization, so we have 30 retailers like Walmart, Carrefour, uh, Ahold, Lays, or Sainsbury next to 30 manufacturers like Nestle, Coca-Cola, uh, L'Oréal, uh, all discussing the industry challenges and agreeing on what's good for them to work on together because they all agree that they can't solve multiple issues alone and they need to take collective action on that. And human rights is one of which. Uh, and therefore, a couple of months ago, we launched the Human Rights Coalition Working to End Forced Labor, which is, again, a CGF-led coalition gathering uh, some of the members you can see on that slide in very tiny logos, uh, but that effectively commits the industry to three things, literally, implement human rights diligence systems targeting forced labor as our main collective impact when it comes to human rights, support responsible recruitment markets, because many of you may know, but 
technically 50% of all forced labor uh, related cases are implying debt bondage. And lastly, support a focus movement with all relevant stakeholders to jointly expedite the elimination of forced labor. And so we do that thanks to gathering members together, of course, involving stakeholders and publishing uh, online and open source tools that everybody can effectively get inspired by. Uh, the idea of uh, the coalition is effectively to say, well, there are upcoming regulations, of course, but how can we make sure that we have a harmonized approach to target human rights to diligence and provide companies with key steps for them to effectively implement and guarantee that they can meet some legislative expectations, but also technically integrate the human rights question and the eradication of forced labor within the DNA of their companies. And this is a key issue for our industry. And therefore, this is how uh, we get to the development of our human rights due diligence framework, which effectively allows for a maturity approach, uh, acknowledging that not everybody has a comprehensive system meeting the UN guiding principles on business and human rights expectations, but that you could be a beginner and yet have a wish to become a leader in that question over the years to come. And so uh, we looked at everything that uh, was requested from companies to implement and report against and provided a simple framework that sets up high level expectations on what should be in place uh, from a beginner, so what we call launched level to an established and then a leadership level for the six key steps of any human rights due diligence approach, which goes from policy commitment, risk assessment, to then reporting, monitoring, and of course, remediating. The view of such a simple framework, which should be visible on the next slide, is technically to uh, allow for everybody to have a common understanding of what you should be doing, but also to guarantee that we can work on this together. Of course, companies, have the responsibility to implement something at their level. But as we saw with the multiple regulations that currently are being developed or are already established, it is sometimes complicated to navigate uh, if you don't have all the resources to process this yourself. And so uh, the idea was to get the collective knowledge and understanding and develop something that could work for every company, no matter where they're from, where they're headquartered, or what type of value change they have in our very diverse industry. Uh, but for them to effectively apprehend what is human rights due diligence and effectively be able to implement something meaningful. The reason why we target forced labor, as I said earlier, is because after stakeholder consultations and effectively a lot, a lot of uh, analysis, notably on our audit data uh, from compliance activities, uh, forced labor remains the most salient human rights impact we have collectively as an industry. And uh, now it seems that a lot of discussions are going on around forced labor. But before that, uh, it was not so clear and it was actually not uh, given that companies would effectively accept that forced labor is existing and that it affects every company because it's an issue which is riddled into our value chains, very difficult to detect and therefore very uh, difficult to target. But yet it's a reality 
that we know exists, and many things are effectively increasing the cases of forced labor, notably through debt bondage, which becomes endemic in some uh, markets today. So with this framework, the view for us is really to ensure that we can just set the tone on what should be implemented and guarantee that companies would be able to develop things at their level, yet sharing industry support, the collective power, so that they can advance faster. And one important thing to see is that regulations today are effectively connecting the dots. So human rights is interestingly linked to environmental due diligence, uh, notably at the European level. So that's why we also try to bridge efforts at our organization level and connect coalitions of actions. So as we say, we have one on human rights, but we also have one on forest positive, which aims at targeting deforestation, uh, but is connecting to the human rights coalition to see how we can effectively look at uh, human rights related impacts, notably the sensitive question of human rights defenders, uh, which are essential to effectively raise awareness of what issues can be at stake, notably deforestation or impact on uh, uh, smallholders, but that are yet threatened sometimes if they try to effectively bring a voice uh, about human rights related issues. And so human rights defenders is typically one of this topic that is in between both coalitions, and this is what we're trying to bridge. And we have a third coalition, which is about sustainable supply chains. The sustainable supply chain initiative is actually looking at one thing that may be criticized, aka the use of audits and monitoring schemes and standards and certifications that many companies rely on for their uh, supply chain uh, compliance activities. But that can be criticized for not always covering the right issues or having the right structure to deliver on the ground. And the SSCI is therefore a benchmark led at industry level, providing a recognition to standard schemes and certifications that effectively meet industry criteria that can be found on our website. The process is very transparent, but at least provide an additional level of credibility slash trust in the sustainability standards we use. All of this then can be exemplified by what we do in Malaysia. So palm oil is one key commodity for our industry. And we decided to make sure that our members would work at their own operations level, but that they, we would use this framework to try to partner with value chain. One key thing with human rights is that technically the default mindset is that, oh, it has to happen in my supply chains. Actually, we wanted to change that and get our members to commit to work on their own operations first, practice what they preach traditionally through various codes of conduct, and make sure that with that at hand, they could then partner with suppliers throughout the value chains to effectively implement together things that can be very complicated. But by effectively applying it yourself, then you are in a better place to make sure your suppliers will also be uh, able to deliver and the idea was not to go from a buyer-supplier relationship, but really try to establish a partnering relationship. So we apply the same systems, yet tailored to Malaysia and Palmol, so that we have a geographically and commodity-related relevance, so that we can, if everything works well, replicate to other commodities and geography in new time. You can see that there are like many elements that are very important if you want to practice well everything related to HRDD, but as a company alone, it's complicated. 
notably government engagement. Lena spoke about the protect respect remedy framework. So if governments have to protect and companies have to respect, you need to make sure that company willing to respect human rights are also benefiting from the right framework protecting human rights. And this may require discussions with government because sometimes regulations or the lack thereof may lead to risks to workers that effectively turn out to be uh, human rights risks, notably when it comes to debt bondage. For instance, if you're a migrant worker and that you are asked to pay for your job, which is an endemic practice happening a lot worldwide, and which in turn ends up in debt bondage, which is a key expression of forced labor. So that's why working with governments and targeting the responsible recruitment uh, concept, which is really about guaranteeing that no worker pays for a job, are these elements that by working collectively, every company can effectively practice human rights due diligence. And this is how relevant it is to our industry, connecting standards, scheme certifications, making sure they integrate new risks and make sure that they cover them through their monitoring activities, connecting with other issues such as deforestation so that human rights are also part of the wider sustainability agenda and guaranteeing that we all work on this together. My uh, last slide, which will look a bit complicated, but actually isn't that really, is really to show you, uh, it's not there anymore, uh, but it's just the various activities that you need to consider. So everything in all operations for us revolves around retail, shops, distribution centers, also labor recruitment, all of these activities that can have an impact that you have not seen, but all you felt was okay. We ask you to self-reflect on this through the framework we have attended. Moving on to supply chain at this stage, we are looking at palm oil and Malaysia as key risk commodities slash geographies to make sure that we can deliver something that can then be replicated worldwide. Last but not least, responsible recruitment takes us to another level. Responsible recruitment is really sometimes guaranteeing that from country A to country B, so from origin country to destination country, workers migrating are being provided with the same level of protection and that are not ending up in situations of forced labor. This combination really allows us to have a comprehensive approach to human rights to diligence at industry level, which we hope will also be meeting uh, legislative uh, expectations and guaranteeing that our members can effectively practice what they want to preach, which is human rights for all. And I'm going to stop there. Thank you, brilliant. And um, just moving on with a few uh, questions um, that are uh, coming my way. And I would start with maybe a question on a smart mix of measures. Um, and maybe, I mean, Len, you can step in first, and Didier, your perspective is very welcome as well. I, I frame my question um, differently. Given that there is a complexity and a lot of kind of fragmented initiative to date, despite um, the threat and the way, if we are to look at the next five years, um, what could be the number one of the most uh, impactful smart measure um, from your perspective, Len, and maybe Didier, you, you could actually also expand on some of the work done uh, to date in terms of smart mix measure that could help to kind of scale up or deploy across, let's say, additional is it geographies or industries or commodities that are relevant to your membership. So Len, um, smart mix um, number one. 
Yeah. <laughs> oh, um, it's hard to sort of point in, in one direction. I do think that if the EU uh, ends up in within the next five years, which I think is, is somewhat realistic, ending up in a good place, I think that is will really have a huge uh, impact because, of course, the, the scope of application uh, will be felt uh, way um, outside of the European Union. So if one has a significant enough uh, amount of states that they get together um, and set standards in line with international standards, that levels the playing field, but it also provides incentives for, for companies to, to, you know, for good behavior, for, for, um, to advance in this. I think um, the level playing field argument is a very important one when we're talking multilateral um, solutions to, I mean, many companies uh, operate uh, transnationally. And, um, and I think that that will be a very important one, I think, and, and a realistic one, I think within five years, um, if depending on obviously what the, what the final directive will look like, and there are challenges that also when it comes to, um, you know, uh, implementation in even within EU member states, but I think that's a really important one. And but it's it's not standing alone. It it provides incentives and it, it compels the laggards and it provides incentive for the leaders to to get things right. Um, but we are really talking about also the smart mix. So the 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 incentive base, the the rewarding in the markets of good behavior um, as as another element of the smart mix. And I, I and I do think as as I mentioned earlier as well, the financial sector investors. If they can move um, at scale, I think um, that's another either by um, by legal regulation or by rewarding um, those who are effectively managing their human rights risks as part of an effective risk management system and therefore um, as part of in, in improved um, financial performance. I think that's what can really um, would be another element of the smart mix that could really um, get us to 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 escalate um, uh, the implementation and the advancements um, when it comes to protecting the rights of people. Thank you. Did you want to second that knowing, um, at least as you just shared the framework, which from my perspective is, is powerful in the sense that that builds um, alignment across um, um, let's say business decision makers across the value chain on what's expected across the chain. Um, it's a lot of issues are coming from um, poor or insufficient understanding of what's expected. But uh, happy to, to hear your take on all this smart mix of measures that could make sense to help and support systematized approaches to human rights in the coming years. Well, let me just to second what Lena was saying. <clears throat> the smart mix is about rewarding. Um, what I mean by that is that there might be unintended consequences of regulations because we may not remember what are the what is the purpose of the regulation if it is truly to protect human rights and guarantee that they become the norm uh, everywhere we should allow for everybody to acknowledge that the problem is still very much there and so you need to provide a level playing field that comes with a safe space to report efforts in trying to identify possible risks and impacts uh, to human rights but today, the reality is that 
it is more an expectation for companies to report, but not really to share where they see challenges and to disclose where they could get support from their national governments or the EU to effectively try to advance the human rights agenda itself. So you can have committed companies, but if to some extent you end up just having an additional legislation expecting a reporting exercise and not providing an open debate worldwide onto, okay, this is where the risks can be found and what can we do together to effectively address those governments and corporations, I think that we're missing an opportunity to uh, work on human rights for real this time. And the problem with many regulations is that the smart mix they're trying to highlight are not always providing the safe space to effectively report and talk openly about what has been found, making sure that you know we can also target criminal activities that corporations are not responsible for, but that may have consequences, notably in terms of finding forced labor uh, in their value chain. And so therefore, yes, a level playing field because there are way too many regulations, but also all of these regulations should really try to lend a hand to what corporations that are walking the talk and making sure that they do not get also from an investor's perspective uh, penalized because they are effectively trying to have an open way of sharing their problems and disclosing uh, where they may see that some things have to be done because today, I mean, you may tend to get companies to effectively shy away from being that open. And we know that transparency is effectively the best disinfectant. So this is why it should be rewarded as such. Well understood. We want actually um, some sort of uh, ongoing dialogue. Um, very welcome. Moving to the next question, which I find a little bit biased, but after all, I like it, so I share it. <laughs> um, I guess it's someone who is uh, exploring a um, positive business case to support and push forward the human rights in uh, her or her own organization. Um, why uh, COVID-19, the crisis, is making the business case even stronger for policymakers and, and businesses to push the human rights agenda? Uh, as I said, the question is a bit biased, but I get it because in the sense that after all, public deficit may consider that the topic is, uh, is, 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 is a luxury sort of for companies are might be navigating um, with a short-term cash and might have uh, uh, other priorities. But instead, um, the business case might be even stronger. So given that the question is here, very, very happy to, uh, to hear the, the tip number one that the two of you, Len, uh, uh, number one could share. To, to explain why the business case is even stronger for policymaker and or business uh, practitioners. <laughs> uh, do you want me to start or do you yes. want to start? Okay. Um, <laughs> sorry. What would you say? Okay. Yeah, so I think it's um, COVID-19 has obviously posed an incredible risk to a number of, um, of, of companies. Um, but, but including on, in terms of how they're responding uh, to this and the expectations from the local communities and their stakeholders, their, their consumers, their, their, um, their value chain. And so if we look at human rights due diligence as essentially a, um, a risk management system that incorporates the lens of human rights, the companies, as they are responding to the risk that comes from COVID, will have a much more um, integrated and systematic approach to responding to these um, to to the to the risks from COVID. The the risk 
um, from the pandemic will affect obviously companies in a different way, depending on what their exposure is. There's some companies where they haven't been particularly threatened uh, and in fact have benefited from, um, from the changing consumer patterns, et cetera, that we've seen from the pandemic. But I think it is about looking at human rights, not as an add-on, but as an integral part of effective risk management. So when risks come in the form of a global pandemic, depending on what what the company is, what the sector is, where the where the the exposure, where the, the human rights risk related to um, to to the company arising from the pandemic, the company will be better prepared and will be able to respond if you already have effective human rights due diligence processes in place. There will also be established procedures for engaging with stakeholders, engaging with um, employees in, to, to try to respond uh, to what are the most effective measures and, and um, in, in, uh, to, to address the, the challenges from, from the crisis. So it's really about looking at this as, as the integral part of how um, a company positions itself in the face of, of risk and having um, the human rights risk embedded as an integral part of, um, of, of risk management. Lydia, any uh, additional point you would like to share on this one, coming maybe just from your membership about, um, you know, a good reason to support the case for stronger, uh, let's say, investment in human rights, despite COVID? Oh, yeah, definitely. And um, I think Lydia just, just mentioned it. It's not an add-on. Human rights are not an add-on. For our industry, it's actually a matter of building back better, as one could say, but certainly about resilience. COVID showed us the limitations of the system, the way it works, and the impacts on workers and human rights throughout supply chains have been, in our case, very visible, not only because, yeah, we gather most of the frontline workers that you can think of, but also because when it comes to value chains, what we saw is that in many sourcing countries, you had an essential part of the workforce, which is migrant, being asked to get back to his country with no possibility to effectively get back. And in parallel, of course, having a key impact, a disruptive impact on uh, supply chains. The same similar extent on the logistics, the global logistics supply chains. We uh, have been sending uh, a letter from uh, many of our CEOs of the Board of the Consumer Goods Forum to the UN Secretary General to simply ask for one thing, is that all the seafarers working on cargo ships should be recognized as key workers and should be allowed to debark and stop being stuck at sea. We saw many cases, 400,000 cases could have been reported apparently of seafarers being stuck at sea, some of them for more than 18 months. Just imagine being on a boat for 18 months and not being able to get back home because, hey, yeah, well, the COVID protocols from different countries do not allow you to get out of the ship. This is a key disruption for our value chains. And above that, I mean, what a human rights impact it has, creating new conditions of forced labor that couldn't be forced in because, well, we were not used to a global pandemic affecting so many of us at the same time. But the reality is that it's a resilience issue now. So we know what can be the impact on human rights. So we need to uh, anticipate them, make sure we mitigate them, and of course, cooperate with governments. Because again, if every government has a different COVID protocol that can affect either agricultural supply chains or even logistics 
from a global perspective, it has impact on all industries. And so therefore we had a role in advocating with this letter towards the UN Secretary General and many organizations have been uh, also echoing the same issue. But the, the reality is that we should all be doing this with human rights lens always in mind because it's no longer a matter of something that you can add on, but it's definitely a matter of resilience of your own business. Thank you. Just um, practical uh, detail. A short poll, three questions is uh, submitted to you all so you can make sure to respond and it's a good way for us to check on quality of uh, the discussion in the way. Just, Asking maybe for, um, to stay uh, on time, uh, just a few uh, closing points and, uh, and think of it. Um, three steps uh, we can suggest, uh, I can uh, reframe based actually on the great perspectives of our interveners. Um, cutting, uh, Cross-cutting risk prediction efforts um, through a good understanding of human rights due diligence is important. I think the point number two increasingly is actually also about assessing impacts and exploring the positive impacts of um, impact measurement systems. Um, in fact, that's something we strongly encourage. One thing with human rights is to understand risks, but the other thing is to be able to increasingly demonstrate uh, that we can uh, uh, mitigate uh, those actual risks. Um, and there is a last point, which will connect to um, a question, a closing question to our interveners. On, um, the inception, the, the way we can include or factor human rights in even the design of new product and, and, and services or, or policies in a very broad sense. And I'm asking this because and that will connect to my closing question uh, because there's been a series of questions in this space about to which extent a lot of the conversation held today um, is disrupted or impacted by the large broad digitalization and the way of a lot of our uh, interactions um, and it's 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 of course an important question so um, just maybe uh, sharing that to the two of you Len did you with maybe two very brief uh, closing remarks um, one to which extent a lot that you've shared today is impacted by uh, digitalization I would say um, of your Activities or what you can see around you, your, your, your work, one, uh, and two, to which extent your participation has been helpful to confirm some of what you know or learn from others, um, from Didier or from Len yourself. And I'm putting a lot of pressure on myself asking that question. Len. Okay. Um, yeah, on the digitalization question, I think it's, it's of course, it's affecting so much of what what we're doing and obviously as I mentioned we do have a particular um, project that focuses on exploring the impact of um, and, and how to sort of manage risk and mitigate risk from from the digitalization. I think in the broader business and human rights space I think for and it for companies it's it's looking, making sure that the human rights due diligence um, processes, the risk identification, 
takes into account the impact they may have through the digitalization of, of their, their products and services, I think is an important uh, reminder. There will be a lot that is still analog, but for an increasing number of companies, even if when they are sort of more traditional um, business sectors, they are increasingly relying on, um, on online uh, tools. So just making sure that 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 doesn't sort of somehow go to another uh, area, but also using in the in the mitigation in the actual addressing and responding to risks, making use of um, responsible use of technology can be a, a huge um, help for many companies as they are they are taking action to respond to the human rights risks. And um, yeah, no, what I. Particularly uh, learned. I think it was very interesting to to hear from Didier the the tool that they have at the different level of um, of um, the sort of journey. Those who are um, beginners. What did you call it? The launch uh, launch level and the leadership level. I thought that I hadn't actually come across um, your tool before, so I'll, I'll go and check that out. I'm, I couldn't really read it on the screen. It was too small, but I look forward to. Um, to, um, to checking that out. So, so thanks again for the opportunity and, and please, if anyone wants to get in touch, um, you and Human Rights um, Office and the work we do in the space, um, you're very welcome to, um, to get in touch with me. Thank you. Brilliant and thanks so much. Didier, pressure is on your shoulders now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, well, um, digital, well, first, uh, thanks, Lene, and, and good advice like for digital things, make things bigger on screens because it's not, not very useful if nobody can read it. It's available on our website, so please do feel free to, to download. Um, very much uh, interested in the conversation we had, but when it comes to, to the digital thing, if, if we take a bigger lens and put a human rights lens on all of this, I think for the first time, the IT sector has effectively increased its emissions above the aviation sector. So you see the fact that we can all now work remotely and like use this type of webinar should be considered from a human rights lens because, well, yeah, it's, it's about unintended consequences of climate change, which will affect again the most vulnerable of us. And we're talking about billions of people. So when talking about the race to zero emissions, I think that especially for the digital sector, it's time to talk about the race to resilience, guaranteeing that if digitalization has to have positive impacts, it has to have them, especially to start avoiding negative impacts on the most vulnerable from us. Uh, and on to learnings, well, of course, it was great to uh, listen to Linny and <clears throat> everything that the uh, UNOHCHR is doing is extraordinarily relevant from a global scale. Uh, I also was really impressed with the slides that you prepared uh, because it's really a good snapshot of everything that exists, showing that the level playing field is not there, but definitely there is a lot going on when it comes to human rights and environmental due diligence. And to be fair, you just told me about one thing I didn't notice, that Mongolia is the first country to effectively have something around human rights defenders, which is huge, definitely needed because... Again, have a, have a check of what human rights defenders are. They cover environmental activists, social activists, and again, covering human rights at large. And they are a threat, and it's largely an issue that deserves a greater level of awareness. So uh, I was very happy to see that. <laughs> Thank you for uh, catching this one in Mongolia. Actually, yeah, we actually at XAPA uh, have um, a kind of... Um, uh, we find it important to ensure that there is really a global perspective on those issues and um, catch a, a lot of those um, initiatives across the globe, uh, just to anticipate sometimes some reactions, notably from uh, 
some supply chains with uh, a kind of a feeling that this is overall a kind of uh, uh, wherever, um, let's say, uh, Western thing or uh, European thing, and, and instead it is clearly not, which actually comes back to uh, the, the, the Universal Declaration Human Rights clearly is coming from a, a very a global basis, uh, still dated in the late uh, uh, 1940s countries uh, that were there, but um, we have that um, top of mind. It's, it's very important to ensure that there is alignment and, and support. Um, so just closing uh, with a heads up on some of our upcoming activities, um, uh, if you find uh, uh, these discussions uh, useful, uh, uh, you can uh, mark your agendas with a webinar um, in June. Um, uh, exploring how to match SDG pledges and commitments, which can be made by um, mostly our audience of uh, uh, companies and investors with impact metrics uh, to be forward looking and uh, be credible, showing how they, uh, they work the talk, um, uh, making commitments and showing how their impact on the commitment they're making, which closely connects to the human rights agenda that has been um, discussed today. And in October, there'll be another webinar on solutions for resilient raw materials uh, supply, deploying how to uh, mitigate uh, risks, um, sourcing raw materials in the global uh, sensitive supply chains. This uh, document will be uh, accessible open source on our website in the publication section at the xapa.org. And uh, if you find it interesting and want to stay uh, up to what's going on the, uh, across uh, what we're doing at Xapa, you can follow us with our page on LinkedIn or Twitter or Medium. Um, just good ways to um, to be connected and uh, questions and answers that you might want. If you want, for example, to be connected with our um, interveners today, contact at sapa.org. No worries, there really is someone, uh, a real person that uh, can really process those emails. Um, and uh, Closing, thank you, uh, Lenny and Didier, so much for uh, very insightful contributions. Uh, thank you, everyone, for uh, taking part in that conversation. For some of you, I know it's very late. For some of you, uh, it's time to go for a coffee. Uh, and uh, this uh, presentation is recorded and accessible on, um, on the podcast as well. I will close uh, uh, this webinar and we'll thank again our great interveners today.